Well, this morning as I was getting ready, I opened my phone and flipped to my news app and I read last night that while we were all sleeping, President Vladimir Putin held a press conference in which he announced to the nation of Russia and to the rest of the world that he had become a Christian. God had opened his eyes to the fact that he was sinned greatly against the Lord and he has believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there on live TV he explained how he had been convicted of his sin and also how he had come to see that Jesus is the Son of God who died in the place of sinners and rose again on the third day. And he declared to the world that he had believed in the promise that God gives. That all who believe in Jesus will not perish, but will have eternal life. And that his greatest desire now was to see others share in that life as well. Consequently, Mr. Putin declared to the world that he had already given an order to his generals to pull out of Ukraine and was taking steps to make reparations for the damages that he had caused. Meanwhile, he announced that he's stepping down for the presidency so he can pursue mission work abroad. And furthermore, he has decided to leverage his personal fortune, resources, and connections to support efforts to spread the gospel. In short, Putin has declared that he is a follower of Jesus. Now, I can tell from the way that a lot of you laughed that some of you are wondering if I got a hold of some bad coffee today. <laughs> because unfortunately, that did not happen this morning. But what if it had? What if it had? Could you believe it? I mean, really, Putin. There are just some people in this life which I think we would struggle to believe that if they, if they had said, I'm a follower of Jesus now. We all have people we know, whether personally or simply by reputation, who are on that list of people we would consider least likely to follow Christ. Well, if you were to make a list of such people from the first century, then the first name you'd have to put on there, right at the top, would be Saul of Tarsus. Saul actually would have put himself on that list, calling himself in a letter he wrote to his son in the faith, Timothy, the most foremost or the chief of sinners. As astonishing as it would have been to wake up this morning and to hear that overnight Vladimir Putin had become a Christian, it was all the more astonishing to the early church that Saul of Tarsus actually did become a believer. And not only that, but to see that God called him to serve the church as an apostle. Saul's conversion is one of the most radical transformations from sinner to saint that the world has ever witnessed. And that's what we're looking at in our passage this morning. This, this event is actually so important that Luke records it three times in the book of Acts. It's radical. It's amazing. And as we make our way through what God has recorded for us, through Luke, about the way that he saved Saul and transformed him, we're brought face to face with the raw power of the work of Jesus to save sinners, such as Saul was and as we ourselves are. So let's begin this morning by reading our passage. If you would, please stand with me out of respect for God's word as I read from Acts chapter 9, starting verse 1 through verse 22. This is the word of the Lord. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias will come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of all who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, our God does impossible things, doesn't he? Nowhere is that more vividly apparent than in the life of Saul of Tarsus. His life is one of the many trophies of grace in the throne before the throne room of God, secured and collected by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. It's a testimony to the potency of Jesus' work, the unshakability of God's plan and purpose, and the overflowing power of, God, of God's love. And this, this passage is a record of how Jesus it triumphs in exaltation over Satan as he accomplishes unthinkable things. Saul's life is a prime example of how God works through what the world calls weakness and foolishness through what it sees as low and despised, to exalt his power in the work of Christ, which is the salvation of men and women everywhere. 
When we first started this study of the book of Acts, I mentioned that while we traditionally refer to the book of Acts as the Acts of the Apostles, really this is the book about the Acts of King Jesus as he works to expand his kingdom. That's a theme and a pattern which we have seen especially in what Luke has recorded for us in, after what happened to Stephen when he was killed for his faith, starting back in chapter 7. In chapter 8, we saw how the gospel, even though the church was being persecuted, spread into the regions of Samaria and Judea. Last week, we saw God's passionate pursuit of an Ethiopian eunuch. And this week, we're looking at how God prevailed over and saved one of his most bitter enemies, Saul. If anything, we are to take anything from this passage, it's to understand that the hand of God is not too short to accomplish his work. If we think about the book of Acts simply as a history book, a record of things that happened in the early days of the church, we're really missing the point of why God inspired Luke to record these things. Luke's aim has been to give us an accurate account of these things so that we can see and revel in the glory of Christ, who not only saved Saul, but who has also saved you if you have been joined to Christ by faith. So while the event of Saul's salvation is important historically for the church, it's also important because God has given us a window through recording this into which we can see how he masterfully works in a person to save them. And that's really what I want to look at with you this morning as we, as we study the conversion of Saul. I want to look at the life-transforming work that happens when a person is born again. So that brings us really to the main idea of our text and the main idea of this sermon, which is this. We see the power of God displayed in the way that he saves even the hardest and most vile of sinners. As we look at the way that God saves Saul, we see really three stages. First, we see, and this will be our three points. First, we see a great confrontation. A great confrontation. This is Saul versus Jesus. Second, we see the great elevation. Darkness becomes light. He gives way to light. And finally, we'll be looking at the great proclamation and what Saul as the preacher declared to everyone he encountered. So let's begin with this great confrontation. Well, last week, we saw God's passion for his glory in the way that he sent Philip to share the gospel with this Ethiopian eunuch. Since Pentecost, the gospel has been making its way from Jerusalem to the region of Judea and the region of Samaria and cities within them, and now even into Africa. Jesus really is expanding his kingdom through the witness of his church. But as we come to chapter 9, we see that he has still greater plans, plans which involve a certain man named Saul. The problem, as we all well know, is that Saul is also one of Jesus' most bitter of enemies. As we come to chapter 9, it's really, it's really like coming to a UFC cage match. Saul versus Jesus. You can see the banner. Verse 1 feels like the moment when two boxers come together to touch gloves at the center of the ring. And as we look into Saul's face, we see a man who is consumed with contempt and ready to kill. Luke describes Saul saying, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
So Saul is upping his game. Luke has already been telling us about the things he was doing in Jerusalem. Since the stoning of Stephen, he has been chasing Christians down in the city of Jerusalem. He's been kicking down doors and throwing people into prison. He had no pity, only passion. And in his zeal, he is doing everything he could to put a stop to the spread of the gospel. In Acts chapter 26, Saul, or called there Paul, and if I slip up, we just, just understand Saul and Paul are the same person. In Acts chapter 26, there Paul tells King Agrippa that he was convinced in this state that he ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He, he, he even lists what he did. He says, and I, and, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So Saul wasn't content to just try and make life hard for the church in Jerusalem. No, he was wanting to wipe the name of Jesus of Nazareth off from the map. He wanted it to be a name written off in obscurity. Now Damascus was a city in Syria to the north, but it had a, a large Jewish population. And the Romans allowed the high priest to exercise authority in, manners pertaining to, in matters pertaining to the Jewish faith. So when Saul goes to the high priest and asks for permission to go, not only to chase Christians down in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, but also to go to Damascus as well, he's, he's asking for to be authorized to do this. And he's not being asked to do this. He's the one asking to do this. You're, you're seeing how passionate Saul is to wipe the name of Jesus off the map. This is, as Saul goes to ask for this permission, this is, this is him throwing haymakers as hard as he can against the name of Jesus. But for all his zeal, we see in verse 3 that he is completely outmatched. Luke tells us that as Saul was on his way, approaching Damascus, he was met suddenly with a light from heaven. In other accounts, Saul further describes that this actually happened around midday, so it would have been at the peak when the sun was brightest, and yet the light that he encountered, he says, outshone the sun in its intensity, and it completely overwhelmed him. He, he fell to the ground, and as he did, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In its birth, the early church had never encountered a more passionate enemy than Saul. And yet we see that in a moment, a mere moment of exposure to the glory of Jesus, he was completely undone. The air was let out of him. All the threats and the murder that Saul had been breathing out against the disciples of Jesus in a moment became the, a ghost of a gasp as he responded, who are you, Lord? Now notice what, Paul, what Saul said. He doesn't say, Who are you? No, he asks, Who are you, Lord? The word Lord is a title that you would use to address royalty. Someone who is in, a, in power, who has authority. But it's also the name which the Hebrew linguists who were translating the Old Testament into Greek used in the place of the name of God. So this is a title 
of divinity. Saul is well aware, as he says this, that he has been confronted with nothing less than the glory of God. No mere king can crack open the heavens. No mere king has glory that outshines the sun. No mere king can speak with a voice that booms from the throne of God. And so the answer that Saul gets to his question must have shaken him to the core. Because the answer he receives is this. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Boom. Game over. Round one knockout. Saul, the enemy of the church and of Jesus, is on the ground before the glory of the risen Christ. And if we didn't know the depth of the riches of the love of Jesus, and if we have never read this before, we might be thinking to ourselves, Saul, your goose is cooked. (laughs) This Jesus of Nazareth, who you were so convinced was a fraud, as a danger, is exactly who Stephen had said he was. And now you see his glory. This light that is brighter than the sun. It's all true, and you are on the wrong side. But that is not all that Jesus said to Saul. Look at verse 6. Jesus says, But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. So Jesus spared Saul's life. This is what grace looks like. This is what mercy looks like. In fact, Jesus tells him to go and to enter the city. But we see that actually as Jesus gives him this command, that he puts Saul on a completely different path. He is now under new orders. Notice, he he is obeying Jesus. When he hears Jesus say, rise and enter the city, Saul goes and he waits. Now, Saul wasn't the only one on the road to Damascus. He actually had a party of men with him who we expect were were sent with him from the high priest, would have been as zealous as Paul was, or Saul, sorry. Saul was as zealous as Saul to bind uh, the church up and to take them to stand trial. And Luke tells us that um, as they stood there, they stood there speechless. They, they, they actually heard the voice, but no one, none of them understood it. They saw the light, but they did not see the one from whom the light was coming from. And while Luke isn't really interested in telling us about how they responded to all of this, but you've got to imagine it would have impacted them somehow, he does show us that Saul came away from this radically changed by what he had just seen. Actually, he tells us that Saul was now blind. His eyes were open, but he saw nothing. So the men who were with him had to lead him by the hand like a little child. And for three days, Saul sat in his blindness, fasting and praying as he awaited for Jesus' instructions, what he said would come to him. So, Saul versus Jesus. Clearly, Jesus won. Saul may have carried the authority of the high priest in the letters that he brought with him to Damascus to arrest believers and to try to destroy the church of Christ. But Jesus, who is a higher priest and a higher ruler as the exalted Christ, had authority as the Son of God to confront Saul with the reality of his beauty and his glory. Not to judge him, but to save him and to rescue him from the blindness of his misplaced passion and zeal. Jesus didn't destroy Saul, though he certainly deserved to be destroyed. 
After all, Saul was dedicated to wiping out the name of Christ. He was an enemy to Christ and a murderer of innocent people. Just because he acted under the authority of the high priest doesn't change the fact that he was waging war on God's people. Not merely with words, but with bars of iron and with lethal stones. Hatred had consumed his heart for Christ. And it is not misplaced for Jesus to say to Saul, You are persecuting me. So for three days, Saul sat there. And he got to experience the spiritual reality of his heart in a physical way. He had seen the glory of Christ. And he couldn't get away from the reality of what he had done. Even as he sat there in the house praying the words of Stephen as he was being stoned, as Saul was there, approving of the action must have echoed in his ears as he said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He must have heard Stephen's words again as he cried, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, but do not hold this sin against them. Now Paul had experienced, oh, I even wrote it wrong in my notes. Now Saul had experienced the glory of Jesus, the Son of God, for himself. And as he obeyed Jesus' command to go in the city and wait, he would have most certainly been wrestling with the fact of his sin, caught in the conviction of what he had done, that in his hot pursuit of the church, he had been persecuting the people of God and by extension had been persecuting God himself. So there Saul sat the one who had thrown others into prison in a different kind of prison, a prison really of conviction, a prison of darkness, where he prayed and where he waited. It's hard to say exactly the point at which Saul was actually born again. It's, actually, it's hard to tell exactly when he became a believer. It's clear that from the moment that Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus that Saul was well aware that Jesus was the Christ and that he was a sinner in need of grace. But I'm actually inclined to understand that Paul wasn't actually a follower of Jesus until Ananias came to him. And I'll show you why I think that in a moment. For now, I just want to think a little bit about Saul's confrontation with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Because this was an important moment in Saul's life in which he, this 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 person, this, this Jew of Jews, this Pharisee of Pharisees, was confronted with the reality of his sin. Before a, a farmer plants his seed, you'll see as you're driving around here, he must first plow and till the soil. In Jesus' parable of the four soils, we see that the soil which bears gospel fruit has been softened and broken up unlike the soil of the path which is hard and unfruitful. It has been freed from the weeds of other desires that grow up and choke out the seed of the gospel. It has been softened and deepened by the Spirit, made into fertile ground which nourishes that seed, even in the heat of the sun. Stephen Charnock, the old Puritan pastor, has helpfully observed that the first two fruits of regeneration the first two things you see in a person who has come to Christ and is a new creature in him are repentance and faith. But we cannot repent of sin if we are not first confronted with our sin and convicted by God about it. In the darkness, sin feels good. It's, it's desirable. It's pleasurable. 
But in the light of God's holiness, we see it for the deadly serpent that it is. Unless God makes us to feel the coils of sin that are wrapped around our neck, we will never detest sin as we ought to. Before the Holy Spirit can grow a heart of submission to Christ, before He can grow a heart of repentance in us, He must first take out the old one. And though it is painful to see our sin in the light of God's holiness, it is necessary that He plow our hearts with conviction over it to prepare us to receive the life of Christ by faith. So Luke tells us that for three days Saul waited with blind eyes. And and as I read that, I cannot help but think about the three days in which Jesus' body lay in the tomb. Or to hear Saul's words, or as he wrote as Paul, later to the Galatians, as he said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Saul felt his deadness. He felt the darkness of his sin. Physically, he was blind. We see that conviction came and that it comes when, like Saul, we are confronted with the light of the glory of Christ and we see sin for what it is. This great confrontation is necessary because through conviction, the Holy Spirit leads us to the cross where we see the sacrifice of Jesus in our place and where the burden of our sin slips from our shoulders. Now, I'm not saying that you should expect to see or encounter the glory of Christ the way that Saul did. That sort of experience was unique to him, even from the way the other apostles experienced Christ. But we do see the glory of Christ when the Holy Spirit convicts our hearts using the Word of God to lay our hearts low. He must confront us with the reality that we are sinners and that apart from Christ we will be lost. Conviction over the reality of our sin is not a comfortable thing. If I asked any one of you to come and stand up next to me and to talk about all the ways you had sinned this week, you would be red in the face. Actually, probably most of you just walk out. No one wants to do that. And yet, we will all give an account to the one who is holy. There will not be one corner of our life that will be unnamed. Jesus tells us that every idle word we will give an account for. The conviction is not a comfortable thing. It is a necessary thing. It will turn your world upside down. Your flesh will tell you to run from it because it will say you will be imprisoned by it. Our friends, as we look at the life of Saul, we see that this conviction is meant to chase us to Jesus who came not to condemn sinners but to save them through his work on the cross. And so we are brought to our second point this morning from the great confrontation to the great elevation. 1 John 1 verses 5 through 9 say, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin... He is faithful and just 
to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There was a transition in Saul's life from darkness to light, physically and spiritually. And it came through the witness of a certain disciple of Jesus named Ananias, who shared this message of the gospel with Saul. In verse 10, Luke introduces us to this man, saying that the Lord came to him in a vision, calling him Ananias. Uh, and by the way, this is a different Ananias than Ananias and Sapphira, so just understand that. Ananias, to which Ananias responded, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said, Rise and go. Actually, that's the same command given to Saul. Go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. And behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision that a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, as we look at this, uh, you've got to enjoy the way Luke has written this. It's like a movie, right? I love the way Ananias first answers God's call. Here I am, Lord. Now, that's the response of a willing servant. Actually, later on, Luke will say that Ananias was a devout man according to the law who was well spoken of by, by all the Jews who lived in Damascus. And we can see that in the way he answered God's call. But Ananias also knew who Saul was. And so as he responds back to God's command, you can really feel the concern in his voice. Um, Lord, you, you know all things. I also know something about this man. I have heard from many about him, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. And you want me to go to his house? You want me to be in the same room as this guy? Are you sure about this? I mean, you want me to go find him? But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Well, that was enough for Ananias. And in verse 17, Luke says he departed and went to the house where Saul was staying. Now, Ananias had every reason to be afraid of Saul. Going to this house would have been like going into a bear's cave when you know the bear's at home. Who doesn't say that Ananias had all the details of what Saul experienced on the road to Damascus? What he did have was a clear command to go and a prophetic word about all that God had appointed for, for, for to do in and through Saul for the sake of the kingdom of Christ. Notice in particular what God says to Ananias about Saul. Go, Ananias, I have called this man. He is mine. He is my chosen instrument I'm going to use him to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Do not let the suffering he has caused your brothers and sisters stand in the way of what I have told you to do, for I will show Saul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now as I read that, I don't know if you caught the irony of God's calling on Saul's life, so let me lay it out for you. So whereas Saul had once dedicated himself to destroying the name of Christ, God tells Ananias that he will now carry that same name to others. Whereas Saul was a zealous Jew who was dedicated to the law and the distinction between Jew and Gentile, he's not the kind of guy you would find in a Gentile's house. Now God says that he's going to be an instrument to carry his name to the nations. 
before kings and also before the children of Israel. Whereas Saul once caused harm and suffering to the church, God says, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Saul wasn't only the last person you'd expect God to save, he's also the last person you'd expect God to do all of this through. And yet here is God telling Ananias of all these amazing things he's about to do with this man. So Ananias went with courage to meet with Saul. And he entered his house. You gotta, can you imagine the looks he had gotten from the, other, from the posse that Saul brought with him to Damascus? Who are you? And why are you here? And Ananias is just, where's Saul? But he goes, he answers the house, he lays his hands on him and says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And as he did, Luke tells us that something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Accordingly, we see that Saul rose and he was baptized as a follower of Jesus. So he is not the same man who came on this road breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Darkness had given way to light. His blindness had become sight. His unbelieving rage had now been replaced with the peace of faith. His fast became a feast and he was strengthened to do this work that God had called him to do. By the grace and the mercy of God, Saul emerged from the womb of conviction as a spiritual newborn in repentance and faith. Now there's actually a little more to this story, which we find out in Acts 22. Ananias didn't just tell Saul that Jesus had sent him. Actually, according to Saul's own account, Ananias actually came to Saul with a gospel command. In Acts 22, verses 13 through 16, he says that Ananias came to him saying, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And he says, At that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, that's Ananias. And Ananias said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sin calling on his name now Saul Saul knew the gospel I mean he was an interrogator he had heard the gospel from Stephen maybe had even argued with him Ananias comes to Saul calling him to believe that message to take action it is not enough to come in contact with the gospel you must believe There are two important things to notice here. First, Ananias calls Saul brother, which tells me that Ananias had seen and accepted what God had told him about Saul. It's a big step. Going to the house of someone who hates you and calling them your brother. It's only possible with the grace of God. Second, and this is really why I think that this is the point at which Saul was actually saved, Ananias asks Saul, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now we have seen previously how faith and baptism go together. Christian baptism marks a person as a disciple of Christ. It makes a declaration. Our sins are washed away, not because we're washed with water, but rather they're they're washed away when we are washed by the blood of Christ. 
which we receive through faith in him. So this is what Ananias means when he says to Saul, calling on his name. This is what Peter actually told the people in Jerusalem at Pentecost when they were cut to the quick and they asked, what are we supposed to do? So we see the effectiveness of the call of God since Saul actually listened to Ananias and became a disciple of Jesus. Now Saul, as I've mentioned, is also known better to us really as Paul. Saul was many things. He was an apostle, he was a witness, a scholar, an apologist, a tent maker, a martyr. But at the root of it all, the thing he counted most precious to himself was that he knew Christ and he knew his life was hidden with him. In Acts 26, verses 16 through 18, Saul recounts how Jesus had appointed him and how he had sent him to the Gentiles and to the Jews to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. According to Saul, that's what Jesus said to him on the road to Damascus. Ironic, because Saul leaves that place not being able to see. God took Saul from being a bitter enemy to being a chosen son. He elevated him to being a witness whose testimony would bring many more out of darkness and into the light of Christ. Saul went from causing God's people to suffering to then saying this in Colossians 1, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He's, he's writing to people who are members of a church. I rejoice in those sufferings. So I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That is how God transformed Saul's life. Great confrontation leads to great exaltation. That's grace. And that leads us finally to our third point, the great proclamation. Well, God had told Ananias he had chosen Saul to be an instrument to carry his name before others. And we see in the second part of verse 19 and into verse 22 that he wasted no time at all. Instead of chasing down Jesus' disciples, we see that Saul joined them. Not only that, Luke says, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And people couldn't believe it. Everyone who heard Saul was amazed and they were asking each other, isn't this the man who created havoc in Jerusalem on all who called upon this name? Didn't he come here to bind those people up and to take them before the chief priests? What is going on here? But while others watched in amazement, Luke says that Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving to them that Jesus was the Christ. Saul, the man who made it his life's work to silence the voice of the church by any means necessary, became, by the grace of God, one of the greatest proclaimers of the gospel himself. When God told Ananias that Saul was a chosen instrument, I don't think he had any idea 
of what God was going to do to proclaim the gospel, not only in Damascus or in the surrounding regions, but throughout the whole Roman Empire. How he was going to use Saul, who we know better as Paul, to write the majority of the New Testament. It's really easy, I think, if we read the, to, for us to read the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to forget sometimes that this is the same Saul who had caused so much havoc on those who first called on the name of Christ. So as we close, I just want to direct your attention to two things. First, it's good for us to see the order of salvation, which we see displayed in Saul's life, Because it's helpful to see the work that God does in salvation. In salvation, God convicts us of sin. He shows us that we have no way to save ourselves. And he confronts us with the reality that we deserve God's wrath. Then, having prepared our hearts, God points us to the cross of Christ, where we see justice satisfied for us through the loving work of Jesus. He points us then to the risen King, who reigns and rules, and who is making all things new. He gives us a new heart with new desires, desires which cause us to hate our old master's sin and which love the righteousness and the glory of Christ. Then he appoints us to the task of living as his people, proclaiming the same good news of the gospel in the way that we speak and in the way that we live. God secures us and keeps us through every challenge and hardship because he has called us as his own and he will deliver us to himself. I read from Jude almost every week to leave you with that promise. He is faithful. And whether we go to him in death or whether he comes to us in the second coming, we know that we are his if we are in Christ. Saul's life was exceptional, but his faith and his, ex- and his salvation are not an exception to how God saves his people through the work of Christ for us, the Holy Spirit in us, and the word of Christ for us. Second, we need to see in the life of Saul that no one is beyond the power of the gospel. I heard a lot of you laugh when I talked about Vladimir Putin. And people can, and they do, harden themselves against God by rejecting the good news of the gospel. A hard heart's a real thing. But ultimately, it's not for us to decide whether someone is beyond the reach of God's salvation or not. That is between them and God. What we have been charged to do is to go into the world as messengers. The way that Ananias was sent to Saul to proclaim the good news of the gospel and to trust God to save his people through that testimony. We get that high privilege of sowing the seed and watching God grow his field. I think that the salvation of Saul gives us hope to share this good news persistently and with hope, even with those who we think are unlikely to believe it. 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 through 16, Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to all who were to believe in him for eternal life. 
The difference between Saul the persecutor and Paul the apostle was the grace of the Lord, which overflowed for him with the love and the faith that are in Christ Jesus. If you are a believer, the same is true for you. So let us be careful that after we have received such great grace and such a powerful mercy that we should hold back sharing this good news with others because we have judged them too far from God to be saved. Likewise, if you're here and you're not a believer, if you haven't experienced this new birth that we see in the life of Saul, do not be under the impression that you have to clean yourself up of your sin before you come to Christ. God did not send Ananias to Saul after he'd figured out how to make himself see. He sent him, he shared the gospel, and the power of God was known. So if you have not trusted Christ, why will you wait? Repent of your sin and call upon his name, and you too will find life everlasting. Let's pray. Lord God, this morning we have seen the power of the work that you have done in Christ Jesus. We've seen that your arm is not too short. This, this morning, Father, even as I prayed for President Joe Biden and for his salvation, we know you can do it. And we trust you with that prayer. We ask, Father, that you would work in us to give us a heart for our neighbors, for our families, for our community, for our state, for our nation and for our world, a heart that desires to see Jesus known and to see the darkness fall and to see the light of Christ exalted in the life of everyone we come across. We pray, Father, that you would do this for your sake, for the name, for your, the sake of your name. And we thank you that we have this confidence. We pray, Father, now, as we observe the Lord's Supper together, that you would do a work in us to reaffirm that communion that we have with you. And I pray, Father, you'd make us diligent in this work. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, our final song, our song of response this morning is More Love to Thee, O Christ. So if you would, please stand as we sing together. Yeah.
seated. We've come now to the point in our service when we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And just as a reminder, we do this first and foremost as a church in obedience to Christ as he commanded us to do. But this ordinance has an added benefit in terms of what it communicates to us and about us. The Lord's Supper is a confession of hope, a hope that even though we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that we have forgiveness and redemption through faith in Jesus Christ. So as we take this together, we are confessing our unity with Him and with one another. So this is not a a ritual. It is a function of faith. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came and became like us in every way, yet without sin, and that he fulfilled the law through his perfect obedience to the Father, that he died in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day,